this morning, uh, we'll actually be looking at um, at Scripture as as one who has been regenerate. We're going to look at this as as someone who is born again. As we look into the wonders of God's sovereignty, and then as we consider the life, death, uh, and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, we need to understand in looking at that that none of what happened to Christ was an accident not the betrayal of Judas not the beating of our Lord not the mocking and spitting upon Christ not the crown of thorns being pounded into his holy head not even the cruelest form of torture in death invented by man the crucifixion was an accident but not even the wrath of God that was poured out upon him as he bore the sins of his people was an accident. We need to understand that this was all planned from eternity past as were all the sinful acts of those who put him to death. God did not turn his head or step down from his almighty throne as these events occurred. Everything proceeded exactly and according to God's eternal plan. And yet, the sins of men were their own sins that they wanted to commit against the Lord of glory. And I think it's very troubling to hear some Christians at times go on and on thinking that they need to apologize for God's absolute sovereign control over the things in this world. Folks, we are called to be apologists. We are not called to apologize. Christian apologetics is the intellectual defense of the truth of Christian religion. And many tend to get a bit passionate when they defend something that they hold near and dear to their heart. But the word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which simply means to give answer in reply. This is uh, less of a debate and more like telling your friend that I found a buried uh, chest. And I'm trying to convince you that that chest holds an infinitely invaluable treasure. But your friend has some questions. And so enter apologetics. Put simply, it's the rational response against the objections people bring up, especially about Christianity. And over the course of 2,000 years, there have been quite a few objections. So if you value having a reasoned response over a frustrating folding of your arms and refusal to engage, then apologetics has something for you. Then that's what you need to start to understand. Because then you can uh, uh, answer the question, is the Bible trustworthy? 
Does God exist? And if he does exist, how can we know that he's good? How can we really know that Jesus died on the cross and didn't merely just pass out? How do we know that the disciples didn't steal Jesus' body away and make up a whole story about his resurrection? These questions have been asked since Jesus walked the face of the earth. In fact, in regards to the question about Jesus' body being stolen, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, share with us the uh, the origin of that argument. So if you would please turn there. Matthew chapter 28, And verses 11 through 15. Matthew chapter 28, starting with verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and uh, consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. You see, this all happened while the women who discovered the empty tomb were on their way uh, home to share this truth with the other disciples. And so the disciples had a need for apologetics before they even heard that Jesus had been resurrected. And so to understand the importance of the study of Christian apologetics, we should imagine a conversion without it. If someone asks why you believe in Jesus, and you stare blankly at the wall, shrugging your shoulders, does that inspire confidence to believe in what you believe? However, If you respond with a conviction about how you know the gospel story is true, that forces people to take a second look. And that's what uh, Jude was encouraging in Jude 3, when he felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. My friends, this greatest story ever told has been entrusted to you and I. It is our calling to contend, to defend, and uh, and to uh, proclaim it. God is not impressed by our efforts of professing Christians toning down God's sovereign control all of, over all, all creation. And to really make him less than he is in the eyes of the world that actually hates him. That's not our job. Our job is not to make, uh, make good between a holy God and a sinful person. There's only one person that can make good. And that is Jesus Christ. 
I myself am not interested in justifying God before a judgment seat of a finite, sinful world. Making them, making God more acceptable in the eyes of man, more pal- palatable to the, the tastes and the sensitivities of men. The men that actually despise and hate him. Because our sovereign God is a good God. And he does not need the justification of any puny, impotent preacher or any puny, impotent sinner. Fortunately for us, as long as there's been objections, there's been those with open hearts willing to explore the pages of Scripture and the history of the world to look for explanations into our deepest questions. The study of apologetics is not just something for those who have a lot of free time and have a natural disposition to study. It's actually commanded of all, all Christians. If you would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 14. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. I want to stop there for just a second. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What did we say sanctification is? It's to be made holy, to be set apart. Set apart the Lord God in your hearts. Do not see the Lord as a created being, but the creator. Do not see him as one who seeks the will of others, but seeks his own will. The one who doesn't sit there and have to take his his will uh, to the opinions of others, but does as he sovereignly chooses. So it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as an evildoer, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. You see, the Apostle Peter wrote these words having intended that those who proclaim Christ would be able to convince others to join with Christ. The Apostle Paul echoed this in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, when he said, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. But know this, 
the Apostle Peter does not seek to make excuses for God's infinite greatness or tone down his eternal plan. The Apostle Paul simply proclaims the truth and reality of God's unfathomable power in order that you may be humbled this day before the great and mighty God and call upon him to save you from your sin. Call upon him to sanctify you by that that same almighty power. And so before we continue in Acts chapter 2, we look at what we've already seen. That Peter began his sermon by denying the accusation that the apostles and the other believers who spoke in languages that they had never learned were drunk. Then Peter demonstrated from Scripture that this was the same Spirit of God foretold by Joel in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Peter says that this would be manifested in the last days in prophecy, dreams, and visions among God's people of different genders, different ages, different social status. And Peter ends the quote by Joel by offering this. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So with that as our introduction, let's now turn to our our text for this morning. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we'll start with verse that we ended actually last week, and that's verse 22. So we'll look at um, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 33. Here we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." 
This Jesus God had raised up, of which we all uh, we were all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And so, as we read this, the question becomes, who is the Lord upon whom the men uh, of Israel gathered on Pentecost to call upon Peter declares in Acts chapter two twenty uh, two that this Lord that they were to call upon is Jesus of Nazareth. Peter now proclaims to these Jewish men the life of Christ, and we see that in verse twenty two. Then the death of Christ in verse twenty three. The resurrection of Christ in verses 24 through 33. The exaltation of Christ uh, to God's right hand in verses 34 through 36. And finally, the necessity in turning in faith and repenting to Christ for forgiveness of sin and blessing of the Holy Spirit in verses 37 through 40. And again, as we read verse 22 of our text, we see it says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you also, uh, you yourselves also know. Now, the thing that we see right away, Peter is a little bit satirical in this term, um, when he calls him Jesus of Nazareth. He claims this, that his Christ is Jesus of Nazareth because he's trying to show that uh, Christ began with humble origin, uh, being from Nazareth, as he was born a man. You've got to remember, Christ was always there. He is God. This is as he becomes a man. And so he would be despised and rejected because of that title, Jesus of Nazareth. That term is first used in the Bible by Philip, who after being called by Jesus to follow him, told Nathanael in John 1.45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so by calling him Jesus of Nazareth, Philip may have also been making a statement about his lowly birth. The character of the people of Nazareth, Nazareth was such that they were despised and condemned. And we can see Nathaniel's response in, in John 1.46. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And so to come from Nazareth, was to be seen as a Nazarene, was the same as being despised, was uh, esteemed as lowly in birth. But isn't this what the prophet Isaiah wrote of in Isaiah 53.3? Listen to what he prophesied. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, 
and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. That term, we hid, as it were, our faces, that's like walking past someone that you just don't like or there's conflict and you go, I don't want them to see me pass. Someone from Nazareth, you didn't want to have them say, oh, wait a minute, hey, Brendan, you you just didn't want that to happen. And so uh, Isaiah says, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And so Peter backs up the sarcasm by saying the opposite. He says, a man from Nazareth, yes, but yet a man attested. In other words, he was proclaimed and proven openly. He was declared a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. John MacArthur says a miracle is a mighty deed. The wonder has to do with the effect that it had. And the sign had to do with its intention. I'll say that again. MacArthur says a miracle is a mighty deed. The wonder has to do with the effect that it had. And the sign had to do with its intention. And so Jesus did mighty deeds which produced wondrous effects for the purpose of acting as a sign pointing to spiritual truth. Signs always point somewhere. And Jesus' miracles were never ends, uh, the means to the end in themselves. They were always to create wonderment that men might turn and look at spiritual truth. And so God, through Jesus, approved his messianic character, accredited Christ as the Messiah by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. So in verse 23 of our text, it says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God to you, of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, Peter applies each aspect of Jesus' life to his audience by reminding them of the fact that they had firsthand knowledge of the things that he was preaching. And then at the end, after the conclusion of this discourse proper, he explains the application in response to a point-blank question. And so we can see that every point of the sermon needs to be relevant to the audience and needs to be appropriate in the major application. Now notice how Peter's message continues by presenting deep doctrinal truths about the things that happened to Christ. And so in the first message delivered in the church age, Peter stresses the sovereignty of God. God foreknew and foreordained the death of his own son. What we need to grasp about the sovereignty of God is that God will accomplish his sovereign purposes and plans, and he will actually 
uh, use the decisions of people, even evil decisions, to do so. In other words, what we see in this is there are two sides of a divine paradox. Absolute sovereignty and human responsibility. They had their own act of will by their own evil natures and they crucified Christ by using the hands of Romans to do it. So one might reason, if Jesus is the Messiah and Savior, why would God uh, sovereignly deliver him up to die? Well, the theological answer to that question is that he cannot be our, our Messiah and Savior until our sin case has been resolved. Until we are made different than we are. In order for Israel to have a righteous kingdom, she must be righteous. In order for us to have a relationship with a righteous God, we must be righteous. Christ came to pay, uh, to die, to pay the debt of our sin. God used real decisions made by real people to accomplish this according to his sovereign plan and will and killing his own son. Remember that every single thing that occurred on the cross was a fulfillment of the Old Testament. When Jesus died, he was not a victim. He was fulfilling to the very letter of the law every single detail of the Old Testament prophecy. God had, in his own counsel, pre-planned this all the way down the line. And so Peter, not only does the um, not only does the, the life of Christ accredit him, uh, you know, uh, Peter says, not only did the life of Christ accredit him as Messiah, but also so does his death. Because it's part of the predetermined counsel and for, for ordination uh, that God made happen. Listen to what Bible scholar Robert D. Culver says about verse 23. He says, foreknowledge here is the Greek word prognosis. The noun corresponding is to that word is prognosko. So Peter is saying that God delivered Jesus over to judicial execution. It was something God determined in his own counsel and foreknowledge. In such case, foreknowledge is not mere uh, previous information, and that's what people like to say. You know, it's almost like God has this cosmic TV where he just turns it on. Oh, I saw the report. I saw it before anyone else saw it. No. He knows it before it ever happened. And so here it says, in case of foreknowledge, it is not mere uh, previous information of what would happen, but actually direction if not even implication of the future event. The certainty of the future event was decreed by God. And in this case, not by any, and, um, any entire, entirely secret counsel, because we know in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53, it was predicted openly that this of this event and attaining circumstances. 
Culver continues, further foreknowledge in Scripture frequently has reference to the establishment of a relationship rather than the information possessed. And you see that as in Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. That is the word, he knew her. He knew her intimately. Culver says, to know is to establish the most intimate of all relationships. So when Peter used the word again in 1 Peter 1, he was thinking not in some certain people in time would come to be saved, but that they had always been elect according to the foreknowledge, i.e., according to that eternal established relationship, end quote. 18th century theologian, John Gill, he said God not only foreknew that it would be, but determined that it should be. He does, not, he does all things after the counsel of his own will, and this for the salvation of his people and for the glory of his divine perfections. Though this fixed resolution, settled purpose, and wise determination of God did not in the least excuse the sin of Judas in betraying him, or of Pilate in condemning him, or the Jews in crucifying him, nor did it at all infringe the liberty of their own wills in acting, who did what they did, not by force, but voluntarily, end quote. They wanted to. God allowed them to, and he used that. In other words, the Jews, the lawless men who put Christ to death, acted freely in accordance to their own sinful nature. And so that doesn't take away from their guilt of the, or take away the guilt of those who killed him because they did it of their own will. Now, the purpose of mentioning both the Romans and the Jews is because this, because we're all responsible for the death of Christ. The reason why he could say to them, he was turned over to you, whether you were there or not, you did it. God's, sovereign, God's sovereignty does not make the crime of killing Jesus any less than it is. God finds no theological difficulty between his predestined sovereignty and the sinful, humani uh, sinful humanity responsibility. God has no theological difficulty revealing that no one can come to him unless he elects them at the same time, condemning those who do not come. There are two great theological truths being taught this day in the early church. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The same crucifixion of Christ may be attributed to the sovereignty of God 
and the wickedness of men. He is to be seen as Messiah by the death that he died, how that God was accrediting to him by fulfilling every, everything in the counsel of God to the very letter. But we have a tendency to put things at odds with each other. With, with the things of God, we, uh, we, we think that it's hard to put those things together in perfect tension and harmony. But think about this. There are some things that we have a difficulty with. Truth and love. Justice and mercy. Personal passion and theological precision. And God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You look at these pairs and they, they appear to be pulling apart in opposite directions. But God says they belong together. And you cannot have one without the other. Truth without love is a falsehood. And love without truth is actually unloving. Justice without mercy is cruelty, not justice. Mercy without justice is enabling and ultimately harmful, uh, ultimately harmful both to truth and to the person to whom we're extending the mercy. Personal passion without theological precision is a mess of opinion and misdirect direction that can mislead and exalt oneself over God. Theological uh, precision without personal passion is cold, lifeless, and ultimately useless. God's sovereignty without human responsibility leads us as some people like to say we are in the, in the sovereign grace uh, uh, theology, that it leaves us as robots or puppets and makes it impossible for God to either forgive or condemn anyone as our actions are, are really not our own. Yes, our actions are our own. Human responsibility without God's sovereignty leaves a world in chaos, not hope. Peter doesn't pull back from the assertion that God's definite plan and foreknowledge or the proclaiming of obvious truth that humans in, were involved in that and are responsible for their actions in, be, uh, in putting Christ to death. His language makes it very clear that the cross of Christ is both the greatest expression of God's saving love and the most horrible, unjust action that was ever committed against human beings. His theological care to express truth accurately doesn't lessen the passion and urgency of his message. On the, on the contrary, it, 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 it intensifies it. And so Peter asserts that this had to be the Messiah because no one else could ever fulfill the prophecy of Scripture the way he did, and only he did, or only he could. And so Jesus is seen to be the Messiah by the life he lived as God did miracles through him. And if the Messiah's suffering was ordained by the foreordination of God, so was his resurrection. And that's what verse 24 of our text says. 
whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Here we see that the purpose of God is being realized because Christ is victorious over sin and death. And that God's set purpose, his foreknowledge, was to send forth his son to die for our sins, but then to be raised victorious over sin and death. If you just think of the feeble argument that so many people have, Christ came into this world to be the Savior. So God says, oh, he can come as a babe in the manger. And somehow I hope that this all comes to fruition through what? Hope? Just that God would sit there and go, I hope that, I I'm going to put it out there. I hope that it, it happens. No, God predetermined it. So when he sent Jesus as a baby, it was so that he would die, that he would take upon the sins. It wasn't a if, it is a reality. It would happen because he predetermined it would happen. And it's good for us to see that. It's good for us to realize it's not just the Jews who are responsible. It's just not the Romans who were responsible. It's all living human beings because of our own sinful nature. We don't want Christ. Oh, we want a Savior, but we don't want Him. We, don't, we want a Savior, but we don't want that, that calls us to holiness. We want to be God ourselves, and have this thought that we're going to heaven just because we're so good. Because we have so much to offer God. We're going to heaven. Folks, the beauty in all of it is that all who call on the name of the Lord who was sent forth for that purpose can find eternal life and salvation. When we think of Pentecost, what, what do you normally think of? What, uh, when you think of Acts chapter 2, what do you think of? So many, you know, we have, our, our minds sort of go toward the tongues of fire and the mighty wind and the foreign languages. But folks, Pentecost is all about Jesus. And this is exactly what anyone who sat under Christ's teaching would expect. In John 15, 26, Jesus told his disciples, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit didn't spend all that time for us to be fixed, fixated on him. The Holy Spirit came to magnify the Son, which is why that's at the center of Pentecost. At the center of Pentecost lies a passion. A passionate Holy Spirit-empowered sermon 
by Peter about Jesus Christ. The Bible is the word of life. The Bible is our manna from heaven. From the beginning in the garden to the end of the New Jerusalem, this is all about creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. The entirety of this story is all about Jesus Christ. If you'd please turn to Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples. Jesus said of these scriptures, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. The whole Bible testifies to this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his story. His incarnation was no accident. His life, his cross, and his resurrection were according to the plan of God the Father. And so when Peter tells, tells us whom God raised up in verse 24, that's that vanquishing death, throwing it from himself, revitalizing his own dead body and restoring himself to a blessed, heavenly, glorious life by virtue of his own power. God resurrected Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, distinguishing Jesus Christ from every other great prophet in Jewish history. Every other prophet had died except for Enoch and Elijah, but those stand off by themselves. But the point is that those who did die, no other prophet was resurrected. Other prophets had been given the power to resurrect the dead, only to die again. Can you imagine Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth. He comes forth. I was right in the bosom of Abraham. Now, I'm back here, and guess what? I'm going to have to go through this again. Lazarus died again. No other prophet had ever been raised from the dead never to die again. The first implication for us is that we do not worship a dead man or a dead Savior. We worship one who is alive, one who can move into the deadness of our lives and bring new life by his Spirit. The man that lay in the tomb for three days was not only a good teacher, not only a holy man, but he was very God of very God, very man of very man. He foreknew because he foreordained it. Hebrews 
says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before, uh, before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was not possible in his divine being that he should be held by death. By the power that was his, he raised himself up from the dead. He stood in our grave as our risen, victorious King Jesus by his resurrection power so that he overcame death. And so once again, Peter wants to show this. He wants to show that this new story isn't really a new story at all. And so in Acts 2, 25 through 28, Peter cites Psalm 16, 8 through 11, which is a Psalm of David. And in verse 25, we see this. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Peter makes it clear that Psalm 16 was not pri primarily about David, who is dead and buried in his tomb. Any of those Jews could go, have gone to David's tomb and see his remains. That's not so with Christ. David spoke about the Messiah. But wait a minute. Peter, do you mean to tell me that David spoke about Jesus of Nazareth? That's new stuff. The Jews believed Jesus of Nazareth was a blasphemer. But Peter, you're saying that this is the one that, that David spoke of? So often the prophetic pattern is to put in, to be put in the first person, the words of the Messiah, right out of the mouth of the prophet. So here, David is speaking, but it's not, it's, it's really the Messiah speaking. David was prophesying the words of the Messiah regarding his trust in God as he looked to the cross. And in verse 25, what did he say? I foresaw the Lord always before my face. Jesus is simply saying, I kept my eyes on God. Or in other words, I, can, I was continually seeing my face before the Lord. Jesus never had a problem with anything because he always kept his focus in, in the right place and that was always on God the Father. What so often derails us as Christians is that we get our attention off the Lord. We start to act like all these other things are so much more important. How many people do you know that when you, when you even mention Acts chapter 2, immediately go to the gift of tongues? How many? Very few don't. Very few look to Christ very few look at what happened with the Holy Spirit indwelling 
those people. And so, in verse 26, we read, Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Because he always had the truth, the faithfulness, the power of God in his view, and the presence and protection of his Father with him, it was sufficient to make the hearts of his people rejoice as well as he did. Not only did his heart rejoice, but by describing greatness to him, by speaking of his marvelous works and singing his praises, we also rejoice. Where it says, moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. That's the Greek word, kataskaneo, uh, and it means to dwell or fix a tent. It means that's where you're, you're putting down your stake. That's where you're living. So the, the, to sit there and say that I will find my place, that I can rest, that's what it's saying. And the word for hope there is elpis. And it can be understood as of a person being quiet and firm and full of hope of the resurrection from the dead, of eternal life and glory with Christ. And so in the Christian sense, it's a joyful, confident expectation of eternal salvation. Don't we have that? When we are in Christ, do we not have that same hope of eternal life and we rest in that? Even though sea billows roll, we see that Christ calms the storm. And then in verse 27, it says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. One of the key keys to figuring out the identity of the Messiah as Savior is that the body of the Holy One would not stay in the ground long enough to undergo, undergo decay or as it says, see corruption. The one who could give life and bring gladness to hearts would make his presence known by not staying dead, not staying buried. And it says that God will not abandon his soul to Hades. Hades, this is, this is sort of a, a difficult concept here. Because Hades is just the unseen world that the soul goes into the moment it, is, it, it dies. The, the Greek word is actually taken from uh, the Greek god Hades, or Pluto. And it really means a, the realm of the dead, where departed souls go. Um, later on, it was used for the grave or even hell. And you also see Sheol, it's Sheol and Hades is actually divided into uh, two places. A place of blessing where Lazarus was and then a place of torment where we see the rich man was. Um, just before we go to, I want to go to the scripture, but 
You, you think of the realm of, this might be feeble, but the realm of education has both teachers and students. It's still all the realm of education. You have one and then you have the other. They, they both fit together. The realm of the dad is just that, your dad. You're not here. That's what the, the, the meaning is, that you are no longer part of this world. You're part of another world that has two sections, two compartments. In Luke 16, 22 and 23, it says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. There you have the two realms. It's, it's not... It, it's just saying death. And in that, you can see both the, the blessing side for the, the one who believes and then the fiery torment of the one who doesn't believe. And I, I'll tell you what, that's a place of comfort for the believer. That's not a place of comfort for the unbeliever. And once you go there, you stay there. A person who who loves the Lord who is going to heaven, they will say, I, I want to I be with Christ. That's where their desire is. They might, may have loved the things. They may have loved their wife or their husband or their children or whatever. But when they are with Christ, their focus is on Him. That doesn't take away for the love of, of their earthly family and the blessings it's just that their focus is on him. Those who are in, in hell, they are there and they can't get out. So when people say, do you believe in, in uh, people coming back and you know their evil spirits? I'll tell you what. If someone manifests themselves as someone that, well, they said something that only you and I would know. That's not that person. Because whether they're in heaven or hell, they're not coming back. They're not. The one will not because he just he's going, this is where I want to be. I do love it, but this is where I want. The other one, that's like saying, okay, he wants to get out of prison. Go ahead and open the door. Let him back. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Satan will manifest himself. His demons will manifest himself. So when someone says, oh, I saw my, my beloved grandfather, he was back, you know. No, you didn't. You saw a demon who was masquerading as that person. You see, if you reject Jesus and drop into eternity today, you will never get out of hell. One of the many things that separates Jesus Christ from all the others is that he, when he died, he came back alive. And not only did his body not decay, but he came back from the realm of the dead, from Hades. Peter's message to this group of men is that they killed Jesus, who was the perfect prophet, fulfilling the things predicted by David. 
so that verse 28 of our text says, you made, you have made known to me the ways of life. You make me full of joy in your presence. You see, when God raised Christ from the dead, he showed him or made him to know experientially or experimentally the way of life. That's, that's in his humanness side. That the path of life that's first shown to Christ, who is the first fruits of those who slept, the first begotten from the dead. And Peter sheds light on the scripture that would have been so familiar with, with these men. In verse 29, it says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You see, before the resurrection, this psalm was perplexing because while David had accomplished many impressive feats, immortality was not one of them. David died like every other king. He was buried and his body saw corruption. Therefore, Peter says, hey, you know what? This can't be about David. This must be pointing to someone else. That someone else is Jesus. And that's why after three days after crucifixion, he broke the chains of death and he walked out of the tomb. They witnessed that. They saw the, Christ, the risen Savior. They touched His wounds. They shared meals with Him. We believe, based on their testimony and the testimony of Scripture, the same thing. He is risen. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is the One whom David prophesied would come. And that's the most important announcement that you will ever hear in your life. And in verse 30 and 31, Peter emphasizes this. He says, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David looked ahead by prophetic inspiration. He was talking about the Messiah. You see, if you believe that David could not have known about Jesus, then you reject this conclusion. That means Peter got it all wrong and the New, Testament, uh, the New Testament is founded on a mistake. But if you believe that the Holy Spirit knew all about Jesus, even in the time of, of David, he was able to share then the knowledge with David and then write the Psalms that Jesus is the one who would not uh, decay he was the one who would sit on the throne as David's greater descendant. Peter insists that he and the rest of the apostles had firsthand knowledge that God kept these promises. They saw that Jesus 
rose from the dead. And that's what keeps coming back. Psalm 16, a passage about someone who would die, then raised from the dead, never to die again. Psalm 132, passage of an obedient son who would sit on the throne forever. The prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you'd please turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Here's what the prophet Nathan says to Samuel. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, we see a reference that seemingly makes sense only with death permanently out of the picture. It was in these passages that the prophet Nathan prophesied that God would establish an everlasting Davidic kingdom with one of David's descendants. And by the first century, this passage was understood to refer to the Messiah. And notice again in verse 31 how Peter is stating that David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. We need to realize that David, like all believers today, was saved by grace through faith in Christ. In verse 32 of our text, we read, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. If you notice the perfect blend of prophetic and apostolic, of what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, the prophetic witnesses of the Psalms is quoted at length, then compared with the apostolic eyewitness testimony, all in order to bring out the full truth of, of Christ. This Jesus is the one to whom David looked several hundred years before. He looked into the future. He's the one to whom we look today. He's the one to whom the disciples looked as he was ascending into heaven. He's the one in whom we see our salvation. But notice, Peter does not use the Psalms to prove the resurrection. It is the eyewitnesses that establish the truth of the resurrection. The Psalms are there to establish that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ and Messiah. And you've heard me, I've said it many times, that everyone in history of the universe who has ever been saved has been saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven in which a man must be saved. Jesus is no more your Savior and no less the Savior of Daniel or, 
or Noah or, or in the Old Testament. He is the same Savior for both. They were saved by grace through faith like we are. The only difference is that they were believing forward. We are believing backwards. We look backwards on all of what uh, God did in Christ for our salvation, and we believe in that and are saved. David and Noah and Abraham and Jacob, they were all saved looking forward to what God would do through Jesus Christ. They didn't know the name would be Jesus. They knew that he would be God. They knew that a child would come, be, come born of a woman, uh, of a virgin, who would defeat our enemy and bring home, uh, uh, bring us all home to a celestial city. That's the whole point of the Hall of Fame faith chapter in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11.10, it says, talking about Abraham, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This is Old Testament faith. Looking forward. And then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 13, says, those all died in faith, not receiving the promise, but having them, seen them far off, were assured of them, embracing them and confessing that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They saw a future with God. They believed that God would do something to bridge the gap of His holiness and their sinfulness and bring them home. They died in faith, but they saw it from afar. Also, the writer of Hebrews at the end of the chapter 11 in verses 39 and 40 says, All of these, having a, a, obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. J.I. Packer, in a commentary on this chapter, on the doctrine of the descent of Christ, says this, and I quote, He perfected the spirits of Old Testament believers, bringing them out of the gloom uh, that Sheol, or the pit, had been for them into the same paradise experience. End quote. You see, Jesus is the Savior of Noah, just as He is to us. And thanks, thanks be to God for that. Jesus allowed Old Testament saints to experience what we now experience when we die in faith. According to the Apostle Paul, he said to be absent from the body now is to be present with the Lord. We all know that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's Christian hope. Christian hope says that when you die, if you die in faith, then your body will be laid in the grave and your spirit will go to be with Christ. That's glorious and that's marvelous. We all await the return of Christ because on that day, we will all, Old Testament, 
and New Testament in a general resurrection of all people have a bodily experience when we will be raised with new flesh. If you were, God forbid, to leave here today and you would die, your body will lay in the grave, but your spirit will ascend into heaven and rejoice in the presence of Christ. And you will be in the, in the fellowship of all the saints, Old Testament and New. And as you wait for the return of Christ to the earth and the general resurrection of the dead, you will end up glorifying God in that day. You know, it's funny because this is not widely thought of. I hear people talk about this at funerals all the time, but it's not true. They'll say, well, you know, Uncle Billy, he's up there in his new body hitting a few golf balls off the tee with Jesus. That's not true on a several counts. Uncle Billy, if he's, if, if he's in heaven, he's a, it's because he's a believer. But he does not yet have his new resurrection body. According to the Bible, Billy is around the throne of God. If you please turn to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 11. Re Revelation chapter 6. And by the way, it's only Revelation. It's not with an S. There's only one. Verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them, they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Our souls are not standing there naked. They've been given a white robe as, as sort of a temporary covering. But Uncle Billy's real hope, his real ultimate expectation, is to be resurrected into a new heavenly body. And he won't be golfing with Jesus. He will enjoy Christ as King in the new heavens and the new earth forever. It will be a glorious time of waiting for that return of Christ. So many times people look at their eschatology as all about us. The end times. It's all what will happen to us. Will we escape tribulation? Will this happen? Will this? We must remember those in heaven are also waiting for the return and they will receive their new bodies. So the question becomes if Christ was raised from the dead, where is he now? Peter explicitly states that in verse 33, 
Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. In this verse, it illuminates the true significance of the events of Pentecost. Verse 33 creates this link between the events of Pentecost and the work of, of Christ. It just wraps it up. By virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit is now present in this age proves that Jesus Christ is alive and rose from the dead. It proves that he is the Savior, the Messiah. His work is done and he is seated at the right hand of God until the moment when God will make his enemies a footstool under his feet. Mankind was created for one purpose, and that is to declare the, declare the glory of God. All creation declares the glory of God. The psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Mankind alone was created to have fellowship with God. He has the ability to know Him and the capacity to enjoy Him. However, He can do this only by when we confess Jesus as Lord, trusting in His redemptive work. So this is the gospel we proclaim. That Jesus, who is God incarnate, humbled himself to die on our behalf. Therefore, he became the sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty of our guilt. He rose from the dead to declare with power that he is Lord over all, and he offers eternal life freely to sinners who will surrender to him in humble, humble repentance and faith. This gospel promises nothing to the haughty rebel but for broken penitent sinners it graciously offers everything that pertains to life and godliness let's pray heavenly father your church needs a revival your church needs a revival of biblical christ-centered preaching because your people need to be guided by your word to glorify your son. Lord, I pray that you would raise up faithful preachers. Make the pulpits of your churches resound with the power of your Holy Spirit, just speaking through your word and magnifying your son. I pray that you would Deliver us from this perverse generation. Deliver us from this religianity, this religion of natural man, this religion that uses the name of Jesus Christ not to honor Him, not to glorify Him, but for their own empty form of religion and ceremony. Lord, teach us the gospel and give us the place and heart to preach it. 
And we also pray that you would give the ear to the people to hear it. Grant us those opportunities, O oh Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' most glorious, majestic, and precious name. Amen.